Welcome to the Uptime Wind Energy Podcast. We have an excellent show ahead for you. Mitsubishi created a solvent that can remove almost 100% of CO2 from large industry emissions. And then GE and Siemens Gamesa have been in a court battle, and it's coming to a close, and GE is in trouble. And then we have a couple of projects from Austed. They're planning to reduce emissions from their steel um, supply. And also they have another interesting project with Newcastle University in Australia to seed coral on Taiwanese offshore wind turbine foundations. Stay tuned. We'll be back after the music. Mitsubishi, of all companies, has created a solvent that takes CO2 out of the air. And they're calling the solvent KS21. It's a trademark, actually, KS21. And it's 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 the summation of almost a decade's worth of work uh, by researchers. And I think this is actually happening up in Norway. So they're testing this in Norway. But it improves carbon capture efficiency or carbon dioxide capture efficiency from existing about 90% to practically 100%, uh, which is remarkable. So the way this system works, and there's a really cool YouTube video that explains it, they have the solvent and they have the emissions coming up the flue with the CO2. The solvent grabs the CO2 and it, I'll use the chemical term, precipitates. So it all falls to the bottom. And then they pull that solvent plus CO2 out break the solvent and the CO2 apart using heat, it looks like, and then they, then they just capture the CO2 and store it and then eventually turn it into rock, bury it. So in a sense, they've created a system in which doesn't require added solvent. Once you have the solvent in place, it's totally recyclable, and they can pull nearly 100% of CO2 from industrial sources. So if you think about it, uh, a steel plant or places where you really have to use a lot of CO2 to make to make uh, things like steel, you could essentially bring the CO2 emissions almost down to zero. That's crazy. And they're saying that the the it's holding uh, looking at a couple of places. Heavy transportation, steel, and concrete as being the, the, the big drivers here. So if the system works, you could actually put it on trains or you could put it on in theory like aircraft that's crazy right is is this something you ever heard of before because it's, it's completely new to me i have a lot of uh questions more than answers so i think the first thing to note is that you can already remove like essentially 100 percent of carbon dioxide if you want to if you're prepared to spend enough um money and, and energy to do so and in a sure. lot of um processing like air processing industries or uh yeah like natural gas when they're turning that into lng they need to remove all the co2 right. because otherwise it will it will freeze out before the gas liquefies and ruin their equipment so they have a really strong financial right. incentive to remove it all and and they do they manage to remove it all in that case 
the only <laughs> place where we don't manage to achieve, you know, the reductions that we w- would probably like to see is where you're removing CO2 for the purpose of keeping it out of the atmosphere because there is no financial incentive right. to do that, that, you know, we don't, you don't pay anything to put a CO2 in the atmosphere. So why would they spend the money to do it? And when you do, you know, it's like a lot of engineering processes getting to 90% you can do, you know, maybe quite cost effectively getting to 99% costs a whole lot more than that. And then getting to 99.9%, um, you know, like the more, more nines that you get, the exponentially more expensive that, 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 that it gets. And sure. that's generally due to just the amount of um, residence time that you need for these reactions to take place. You know, it's like, uh, Oh, I'm no, I'm no chemist. It's been a little while since I did my video on, on this technology. But basically, you know, there's a reaction happening, and at the start of the reaction, right. there's a whole lot of um, molecules there ready to grab CO2 out of the um, solution, and then, um, you know, as time goes by, there's less CO2 in the solution, and so it takes longer for a CO <laughs> CO2 molecule to, um, you know. <laughs> hit the thing it's trying to react with and um, precipitate out. So, sure. um, yeah, in the end, you, you need really long times or and or big vessels to get to the really high levels of removal. So if they have some way that they can get all the way to very close to 100% without needing a massive vessel, then that would be uh, definitely an... Um, a significant advance because currently, like if you look at a you know a coal power plant or or a- any kind of power plant that's got CO two removal on it, the CO two removal right. pros um, equipment is some of the biggest kit on site. Right, it's just it's humongous. These uh, these <laughs> big vessels that they need to to run the the process, and it uses a lot of energy. You, you know, maybe thirty percent of the energy that is the power plant is generating will need to go back and um yeah power the CO two removal. So, um yeah, I haven't seen the. It's interesting, you know, like what you call efficiency. It's re- it's a f- removing with one hundred percent efficiency, which they are intending right. means capturing all the co2 that's not brand new or impossible what's the energy efficiency though you know if you put it on a, a power plant how much of the that power plant's output needs to actually be diverted to um, power the co2 removal and then if they're really going to put it on transport which is definitely something i have never never heard anybody with a, a process that they remotely thought could be fitted on transport, I mean, the, the question then is not just how much energy it's going to use, but how big is it going to be? Um, and are right. they still getting that 99 point whatever percent removal at the scale that they can plausibly put on a, a truck or a, a train? Or I mean, it's not going on airplanes. Ship. Surely. <laughs> ships, yeah. Ships, ships would probably be maybe the easiest place to put it because, yeah, yeah mass doesn't matter. Space doesn't matter nearly so much there. Doesn't matter but, so much, right? Well, yeah, because the the marketing people for Mitsubishi uh, put out a statement. It, it's and this is a quote from one of the marketing people. It said, "I think most people still don't truly understand how important this breakthrough is for the future of CO two capture and the decarbonization effort globally." I think that's a very true statement. If it does what we think it does, and it and like you said, if it doesn't use a lot of energy to repeat the cycle, mm. that would be gigantic. I think you're right. It's it's a question of how much energy. 
I suspect it's not the hugest breakthrough. Otherwise, I feel that I would have heard of it already. Because that's the real problem that I have with, <laughs> with talking about carbon carbon capture is that it's always, you know, like the company that has the, the innovation, the technology or the product, they want to make it sound sensational because they want attention um, because sure. they want to raise, raise funds. But when you make it sound sensational, it's always done in, in a way that makes it sound like this is, uh, you know, instead of decarbonization kind of thing, you know, um, de- uh, carbon capture. It has that risk that it makes it sound like, why would you bother doing anything else in the energy transition when we've got carbon capture now? So all you need to do is just emit as you were, just continue business as usual, and we'll just we'll just suck it all out of the atmosphere. Or you know, in the, in the um, case of direct air capture. Or in case of this one, yeah, we'll all like, don't worry about electric vehicles. Don't worry about renewable energy because there's a new technology coming that, you know, is just going to make that problem go away. And um, the the carbon capture technologies that we have for now are definitely not close to that that level, especially because of the energy use. You know, it's... um, you make the problem worse. <laughs> the more of these things that you install, that you're increasing your, right. you know, your energy needs by thirty percent, which means emissions by thirty percent, and so you know it's kind of like diminishing um, returns. Um, yeah, and the other thing is that you often see, like in reporting on all all technology, but especially clean energy technologies they never really give you a sense of how much development time is left. And, you know, in the case of carbon capture, I'm really glad people are researching this because, you know, come 2050-ish, we're, we're going to need that for the stuff that you just can't decarbonize, which will... That's right. I, I don't think that will include steel. We can talk about that more later, but um, that's going to include, you know, some aspects of, of agriculture and some natural processes. You know, if we've already started off permafrost um, defrosting, then that's going to be, you know, some big, <laughs> big emissions coming from that. And we're going to need carbon capture right. for for those sorts of things. So I, I, I'm 100 percent on board with um, research and development of carbon capture, but where it gets tricky is in the reporting of it. I think it's so important to, um, you know, make it really clear what are the the energy costs of this. You, you know, if energy costs are high, it's yes. never going to be instead of decarbonisation. It's it's going to be for, you know, specific use cases. And I know that these um, the spokespeople from this company are are saying that. So, you know, it's um, they're, they're not saying this is, you know, going <laughs> to gonna eliminate the need to decarbonise. They're saying this is going to be for the hard to decarbonise no. industries, which implies it's going right. to be uh, expensive and energy intensive, or at least one of those two. Yeah. And the other thing is you, you just got to be really honest about how much time is, um, is left before you can plausibly commercialise this. Um, and that's, that's something I've been talking about a bit recently on my channel, um, you know, it takes very often 20 years after the really exci- exciting science has happened, Bingo. which is probably where they are here, yep. exciting science, cool. It's probably 20 years of engineering before they have a chance at rolling this out on an industrially meaningful scale. And I think if you're not honest about that, it can make people, give people the impression that, you um, this is, you know, some sort of silver bullet solution and really get in the way of all the other stuff that we need, we need to do in the meantime, the technologies right. that exist now. Yeah. Well, I think there's two good things going in, in this news piece, which is one, it's Mitsubishi. So Mitsubishi doesn't tend to exaggerate too much. They 
pretty much are straight shooters from all my experience with Mitsubishi. And the second is they have been working on this for 10 years. So I, I like you, think it has to be developed for probably a good five or 10 years. And having done that myself a couple of times, you, you see it's like, oh, yeah, it's a 10-year development cycle just to get it to the point where they can marketize it. So they're there. It's, so it's not new. It's just there. maybe it's reached the maturity point where they can start talking about it. And they have been doing this uh, demonstration site up in Norway. Those are all good indicators that maybe this technology is worth looking at and companies or people like Elon Musk and some of the Google families that are, that are throwing money at carbon capture may want to take a look at something like this because this may be your biggest bang for your buck if it doesn't use too much energy. And Rosemary, you're right. I think that the missing piece in this news release is how much energy does it take to make this chemical cycle go. More to come. Get the latest on wind industry news, business, and technology sent straight to you every week. Sign up for the Uptime Tech Newsletter at weatherguardwind.com slash news. All right, Rosemary, your old employer is going through a huge battle with Siemens. Yours Gamesa. too, right? And, well, it is mine too, actually, but I, I didn't work in the renewable energy part of it. I worked in the, the spacecraft part of it from years ago, but... GE and Siemens Gamesa have been locked in a patent battle. So GE was suing Siemens Gamesa for a particular patent infringement. Siemens Gamesa came back and said, well, you're infringing on our patents. And it turns out that Siemens Gamesa got a court to agree. So now GE is kind of in a bind. So the, back in June, a court in Boston agreed with Siemens Gamesa that GE has infringed upon one of Siemens's patents having to do with sort of bearings and structural supports around bearings and their direct drive platforms. When you go, well, direct drive, that's that's Halliade, right? That's, that's what it is. So it, it, the, the court is now progressing into this penalty phase. Which is the worst and probably the scariest part of any patent litigation is what is some judge or jury going to lay out for the amount of penalty you're going to pay for this? What Siemens is pushing is $30,000 per megawatt. So most of the Halliades, offshore Halliades are like 12 megawatts. So you're talking about $360,000 per turbine sort of penalty. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of money for a patent infringement. Uh, now, that's where it starts to get really heated. So if you can think, well, the Halliade is going to be used on Vineyard Wind, the next real big wind project offshore in the United States. And there's a couple of others. There's one ocean wind down in New Jersey or two relatively new projects. What's GE going to do? Is Siemens going to let them put Vineyard Wind in? Now, what it seems like at the moment is Siemens is saying, hey, there's 62 wind turbines that is going to go in vineyard. We're going to let you do those. We're not going to penalize you. Like those 62 you can do, but not a turbine more. It's not 63. It's not 64. It's 62. So you can make that many. After that, you have to stop. Now, as you can well imagine, you're playing in big time politics in the United States. And in terms of offshore wind, there's a lot of state involvement. So the state of New Jersey gets in front of the court recently and says, hey, you can't shut us down. We're trying to create offshore wind on the state of New Jersey. We have this big project going on. If Siemens shuts down GE, we're stuck and we've got 
millions and millions of dollars. I think the the vineyard has already paid GE like one hundred and fifty million dollars. So there's there's a huge pile of money here. I don't see how this ends happily. And Rosemary, does does this even make sense for for Siemens to push this hard on GE? Does this say GE is guilty? Whatever that is, whatever that, what we feel like, but thirty thousand, basically three hundred fifty thousand dollars to four hundred thousand dollars a wind turbine as a penalty. Does that seem commensurate with the <laughs> infringement? It seems like a lot. Uh, I mean, you can buy a big, big chunk yeah. of a wind turbine for that amount of money. I mean, obviously these are huge offshore wind turbines, so y- you know, like even each each blade would cost more than that i'm assuming um but it's sure. it's not small um haven't you you love uh trawling through patent databases haven't you looked up the the patents and yes. and had a look <laughs> just it, briefly it's yeah, it just, just sounds so it's benign mechanical. yeah it just it really doesn't sound like the sort of yeah. thing that i would imagine there being a um you know an exciting patent on an offshore direct drive turbine structural support mechanism and the physical and structural arrangement of the main shaft bearings. I mean, that's so boring. <laughs> it's, um, yeah, it's incredible. <laughs> it's incredible to me that that has such a valuable patent uh, associated with it, a design detail like that. And of course, it's a, it's a, a huge, huge stuff up on the part of GE. And I, I know that they have a very proactive um, legal team when you, you know, you're working on a new yes. design, then you will that was a you know project managing new technology um uh, product developments and you will sit through hours and hours and hours of of meetings with um yeah the the GA patent attorneys to trawl through any possible remotely similar patent that could could cause problems so I don't know if they missed this one or if um you know it's really I, I can't understand the language I could never it's do interpretive I could never do that on my on my own. No. You need the lawyers, you need the engineers there to understand um, what on earth the patent means and if it's similar to yours. But you need the legal team there to, you know, interpret the language. And um, there's always, you know, you're reading the the patents and it's you know this is the the primary claim and you know they say all this stuff in there is that actually an intrinsic part of the patent um, or is it just peripheral? Yeah. Is there prior art? Yeah. Blah blah blah. It's so incredibly boring <laughs> for an, for an engineer. I'm sure patent attorneys love it. Otherwise, they'd do something else for a living. But um, yeah, it's uh, it's incredible that it's gotten this far. I've never had anything I was working on never never had a a problem. So I don't know what a normal uh, amount to award is. But your question about is Siemens right to push it? I mean, I would push it if I, <laughs> I was Siemens. That's that's what these companies have. Yeah. They have their intellectual property. They, you, you know, if you don't enforce it, why is anybody innovating? You kind of need it to be enforced to keep the whole system working. Uh, it's it's tricky. Isn't there an off ramp to this in the sense of I, I think Siemens can get their pound of flesh. I'm totally fine with that, but. You can't doing this forever because at some point GE is a, is going to have to either redesign it or pay some something to Siemens that's a reasonable amount. Those are your two options, really. 
Yeah, so I think that um, GE and Siemens should be able to get together and work out an arrangement because if GE has no choice but to redesign, then Siemens doesn't get any money anyway. They get some extra sales while GE isn't able to sell anything. Um, That's about it. So I guess that that is why they have made this initial concession on the first 62 turbines. But I think that, yeah, GE and Siemens need to get together and say, you know, there would be an amount of money that GE would be prepared to pay rather than redesign. Um, and um, Siemens sure. would, you know, probably want to find the <laughs> what's the maximum amount that that is and, and hit it. You know, they need to get around a negotiation t- table and see if no. they can they can find a find a deal it seemed like Siemens initial initial starting point was GE has to cease and desist mm. and I get that as a bargaining point that you have to start there <laughs> because you know you're not likely to end up there but it's, it seems like there's a big disparity right now and when the U.S. sees it as a, as a national interest, and I think at this point it, GE can make the argument that it's of the national interest and of states' interest to petition the court to either lower this thing or, or to make it go away. Now, now you're in – now Siemens may have all of a sudden a weaker case, right? If the president of the United States says, hey, this is going away, I think – I think – they can do that. I think they can make it make life miserable for Siemens if they wanted to in a myriad of ways. That's so un-American. I, I, I don't know if you want to do that. <laughs> that will never happen. I mean, it's a, you know, no one pursues intellectual so? property rights totally. more than, than the U.S., right? Uh, what's the... That's, that's true. But it's, yeah. it's not a I U.S. Mean, company. Is... See, that, this, that's, the, that's the piece. Yeah, but then that's like, you know, uh, do you want foreign um, investment in your your country? Or do you want to, you know, become uh, this isolated country that only uses U.S. technology? I think that you'll suffer suffer more uh, for that <laughs> that perspective than I, I, I'm not you know what you've it. got now. Yeah, yeah. I, I as a as a patent holder, you're a patent holder too, right, Rosemary? You have patents. I've got my. I, I'm an inventor. Them? I have my name. Uh, I was the inventor of, of patents. I don't own them. Um, but yeah, yep, yep. There I'm you, okay. Well, technically an inventor, like you. Right. <laughs> so you're part of the you're part of the large part of inventor the club. family, right? So we always feel <laughs> yeah. you're part of the club. You're part of the in crowd. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you feel pre- really protective of your intellectual property, and that's and intellectual property and patents are part of the U.S. Constitution, so it's a big deal in America. I totally agree with you. I'm on your side with this. Intellectual property rights are ultimately the thing that shouldn't be touched by government. But the reality is, is that if push comes to shove and it gets to be a big deal, I could see where either, I guess there's a couple ways they could do it. The federal government could just write a check to GE and say, hey, yeah, isn't that a better way? It, or isn't that better that it, they it, just, it you know, be. they they just chip in some money? Okay, we've had a cost blowout on this particular project. We'll chip in. We'll chip in some money to, you know, to cover that. Um, now move forward. But yeah, I, I think intellectual property is really uh, interesting problem because it, it 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 both accelerates innovation and hampers it at the same time. You yes. know, um, so sure. any time you look at an individual case. Of patent infringement, you almost always feel sorry for the person that infringed if it was, you know, accidental, which, um, yeah, uh, in, in, you know, uh, the countries that are developing the products that we we deal with, that's usually the case. They're not doing it on purpose. Um, 
But True. yeah, on the other hand, so it sounds like, okay, everything should just be open and then we'd be able to move faster if we shared all the knowledge. And that sounds like a really nice idea. But then you think, well, why, why would the first person invest millions of dollars into the development of something? And then once they've right. made all the expensive mistakes and le- figured out how to do it, somebody else just comes along, doesn't have to spend that money. That puts you at a disadvantage for having been the one to innovate. So you can't have that either. Um, I think that one interesting True. model is, um, you know, Google's, uh, well, Alphabet, I guess it's the other way around, Alphabet owns Google, but, you know, they, they invest in a lot of new um, technologies and they had one, um, Makani uh, Airborne Wind, for example, that I've looked into a lot and they they stopped developing that because basically the economics weren't going to work out for them. But when they mm. when they give up on a technology they release all the IP um, to the public domain. So, you know, if you want to develop an airborne wind system, you can go and have a look at all of They've got all this data from, um, you know, like test flights and, and everything. And you can, you can see what they've done and they've promised that they, they're not going to, um, you know, launch legal action if you use one of their patents and, and stuff like that. So that's kind of one, um, that's one model that you can kind of maybe get a bit of the best of both worlds. Right. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. So I think, I think your point about how many patents or patents there are on a wind turbine and then making sure you don't stumble into one is true. If you look at the number of, and we talked about it, I think it was last, well, in the previous episode, we talked about it and how many patents there are. There, there's a lot of patents related to wind. <laughs> so if you have to sift, sift through all of those and make sure you haven't infringed, that's a, that's a, it's a full-time job for a number of people just to, to do that and to, to stumble across one um, accidentally, I think, is totally likely. But I think the, 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 thing you're, the thing you're seeing in editorials right at the moment is that, well, GE brought, upon, brought it upon itself because GE was very aggressive going after other companies that have infringed on their patents and getting the royalty payment. So it, it became a sort of a little bit of a cash cow for them. Mm. And I think... The feeling is, is that a little turnabout is fair play. <laughs> so Siemens is going to get their, uh, uh, yeah, is going to have their whack at GE here. And the industry is like, well, GE kind of deserved it. That's, I, I disagree with that, but I think that's where some of the industry is going. Well, GE is just going to have to pay for it. And yeah, I get it. Sure. But it is very complicated. It's not as cut and dry as some of the news reports put it out to be it is is you and I know making sure you don't stumble across somebody's patent that's like you're saying something that's a mechanical support in deep inside a wind turbine generator the chances that somebody saw it and said hey I'm going to steal this and put it in my GE turbine that chance is essentially zero there is mm. no way GE would allow that to go on internally so yeah it's and just for sure if they if it was intentional, I mean, they could have more easily just designed it in a different way. I'm sure that there was another solution available to them sure. that was practically as easy. Yes, that um, they would have they would have gone down that path. But now, you know, obviously everything's designed, manufactured, certified, tested, validated. It's not very easy to right. change change something at this this point. Yeah, but I don't. I never like to. Uh, yeah, I never like to see that you know a solution moving forward is that companies are a bit nicer to each other or nicer to the environment or nicer to, you know, whatever. I I I I don't. 
trust that companies are just going to be nice. And I would rather, you know, trust that um, governments and, uh, you know, international organizations put rules in place that everyone knows the rules and plays by the rules. You get the rules right. You don't need companies to be nice because when can you ever really rely on that, you know? Um, So I don't think that GE is is maybe wrong for having pursued their, their patents. I mean, you spend so much time and money developing them of of course of course you need to pursue those and i don't think that siemens is wrong for having uh you know um turned the tables and i'm sure they feel some sort of schadenfreude about it and that's fair enough i would too um but (laughs) yeah i think you know it's 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 business it's not it's not a couple of kids in the playground um (laughs) it needs to be sorted out in a way other than or just you know play nicely (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And, and we're, we're seeing the result of that. So it, I think over the next 30 to 60 days, you're going to see some sort of uh, direction. GE may just say, forget it. We're just going to redesign it. And I think I'll, I'll ask you this. If it's a, I'm guessing, it's probably like a $10 million redesign in terms of like the engineering time to, to make the make the change and get it all implemented. But then it's the, the recertification part of it. Yeah, I think a, a ten million dollar design change turns into a hundred million really fast. Yeah, it depends how. I, I mean, you don't need to recertify for every design change, um, but uh, if if you if you do, then that's uh, that's expensive and time consuming. Probably people aren't going to be wanting to buy these right. in the meantime. Yeah, bingo. Right, I th- I think Siemens knows that. Right, I think it's buried yeah. so deep inside that if you change it, you really could affect performance and lifetime. That's my guess at this, having seen a little bit of it, is that where that Siemens knows they have them <laughs> in a sense mm. that they know it's going to well, be really expensive to change yeah. so they can ask for the sky. Yeah, yeah, they can ask for the sky because they know if they had to do the same change at, on Siemens, they, how much it would cost. So they, they have a pretty good idea mm. how much pain it's going to be and they're willing to take it up mm. to that line. Fascinating. Mm. Lightning is an act of God, but lightning damage is not. Actually, is very predictable and very preventable. Strike Tape is a lightning protection system upgrade for wind turbines made by WeatherGuard. It dramatically improves the effectiveness of the factory LPS so you can stop worrying about lightning damage. Visit weatherguardwind.com to learn more, read a case study, and schedule a call today. Okay, so the next topic is on uh, Erstel or Orsted, Danish company. I never, know, I never understand why they they chose to change their name from Dong, which was a yeah bad bad name in English, to something that's totally unpronounceable in English. But uh, they have plans to reduce their emissions from steel. There's a lot of steel in in wind turbine towers, obviously foundations for offshore. So they want to uh, decrease their uh, upstream emissions linked to manufacturing steel. Um, and their plan for that is basically to, instead of using coking coal as the reducing agent to get rid of the, the oxygen from the iron ore, they're going to replace it with either natural gas or biomass. And they say that they're going to be able to reduce emissions by about 20% um, by that method. So that's, uh, that's good. That's uh, in line with you know, basically anybody that has any kind of emissions reduction target or any net zero date in mind is looking to reduce upstream emissions and the changes that they're planning to make. I actually haven't heard of too many projects where they're using um, natural gas instead of coking coal. Um, 
But yeah, either natural gas or biomass, it's really similar to the way that we currently make steel. Um, and this is something that I've made a couple of videos now on the YouTube channel about um, reducing emissions from steel. And yeah, this is the, the easiest way. It's very similar to the current method using, you just replace the, the carbon that is in cooking coal with carbon from natural gas or from um, biomass. And it happens basically the same and you don't need to change too much equipment, but you're still obviously the reaction when you reduce, when you react carbon with the iron ore, which is um, FeO2. So you need to get that O2 out of the iron ore. You react it with carbon, then you get CO2 and that goes off into the atmosphere unless you capture it. So you still got um, carbon emissions, but a bit less if you use gas. I don't even know how much less, minimal less, I would have thought if you use natural gas. Um, and then yeah, so. with biomass, same, same amount of emissions, but they were presumably recently captured out of the atmosphere. So you end up with something approximating zero there, although it never is zero because, you know, things things are complicated. But yeah, yeah very, very simple, simple swap out basically it doesn't involve a lot of equipment changes, but you are really limited in the amount of reductions. You, you can't get to zero, um, zero emissions this way. Then you need to move to other technologies. Why is Orsted jumping in the middle of this? They're not the uh, really large user of steel, not shipbuilding has got to be more Buildings have got to be a lot more in terms of steel. And none of, we haven't heard anything really from the wind turbine OEMs, not that they're involved in tower manufacture all the time, because sometimes they are, sometimes they're not. It seems like it's not a project for Orsted to get involved in. It seems like that there's other industries that should be doing this already. And maybe Orsted's just going to decide to, to buy from somebody that's using what I'll call greener technology, using creating less CO2 or maybe switching to electricity to heat the furnaces. Is is that where, where the emphasis is? Is just going to make a decision that we're just not going to get involved with companies that make steel the old-fashioned way? Like I can yeah, imagine I, I think a it's, lot of countries still do. I think it's that. I don't think um, are still planning to get into steel manufacturing, become a steel manufacturer. That, that would be absolutely insane and yeah, doomed to weird. failure. Uh, I mean, it says that they they can encourage and accelerate the um, the use of um, electric arc furnaces, for example. Steel producers can switch their electricity to renewable sources. I mean, it's all like I, I sure. assume they have a they have a net zero date in mind. Um, and I think something like fifty percent of their upstream emissions, their supplier emissions, come from the manufacture of steel. So um, oh, there isn't a lot of zero emission steel on the market today. There is some. Um, Sweden has a ha, has some, I believe, is being produced mostly with um, with hydrogen using hydrogen, uh, which does a similar thing. Oh, wow. you, know, you, okay. you still got to react out that that O two, but if you put hydrogen in, then you can react right. um, and make H two O water. So water, that's yeah. a way that you know if your hydrogen production doesn't have a lot of emissions associated with it, then so, you can end so up is, with a low emission steel. Is this a way for Orsted to sell their product back into the steel companies? Because it sounds like Orsted's talking about making green hydrogen, right? Is this a way to, to sell a product? Say, so we're not going to buy any steel unless it's made with our clean green <laughs> hydrogen? It sounds like a very circular argument, but maybe it's profitable. Yeah, yeah, maybe vertical integration. Um, but they haven't mentioned hydrogen in this uh, yeah. this little announcement. Um 
Yeah, but I suspect oh, this is all about, you know, they want they want zero emission steel. There's not enough available yet. And so then they have to go to their suppliers and encourage them in that direction. Uh, I mean, the best encouragement is probably in the form of a, you know, <laughs> higher price that they're willing to pay for, for this product. I think eventually we won't need that for sure. green steel. Eventually it will compete on its own, but probably not for another <laughs> 15 years or so uh, would be my total guess. But you um, mentioned or you haven't heard okay. wind turbine OEMs um, with the same types of projects, yeah. but it will surprise me if they aren't doing something similar. And I don't know why they haven't, you know, made a big deal about mm. it um, because they they do have um, net zero targets, right? The wind turbine OEMs, yes. or at least some of them do. I know GE Renewables does, um, or whatever <laughs> whatever it's going to be called moving forward. I assume that they'll take that commitment with them. Um, and For no yeah, love. steel currently has a lot of a lot of emissions associated with it. I think it's like 1.9 tons of CO2 per ton of steel if you make it in the traditional way, with um, which everyone does currently. So we'll see more of that. Sure. Yeah. There's heaps of exciting technology with steel, though. So, they, you know, these technologies they've mentioned here um, with the you know, gas or biomass or hydrogen, it's really similar to the way we do it currently. And those are, you know, technologies that are pretty pretty ready to be rolled out rapidly. Um, those are the kinds of um, technologies steel companies are thinking they're going to use to hit their 2030 emissions reduction targets, which are for most of the steel producers, they're aiming for about 30% reduction by 2030. But then everybody's got, you know, right. zero by 2050 target and you just you can't get there with these technologies unless you also try and add carbon capture, which I haven't seen any big steel producers um, announce that they're seriously investing in um, carbon capture then you have to move on to other technologies like electric arc furnace is is good, um, yeah. but you need recycled scrap steel to to um, you know feed into it. You can't just use make it go. iron ore. You can't make it yeah make it from right. <laughs> from dirt in the ground, um, which is you know uh, which we need as long as the industry is expanding. Um, and then there's a couple of different electrolysis processes that are under development. And the most advanced is probably the one from Boston Metal, who I got to tour while I was in in Boston near you guys. Yeah. Didn't get to didn't get to catch up with you there though. But yeah, so those are more like 2030 and beyond processes. And those ones, once we have you know a fully decarbonized electricity supply, though those will be you know zero emissions processes. I think that I think we just defined a, a very rosemary thing. The what? age <laughs> of maturation for anything to do with renewable technology. Well, 2035. Well, you know, it's another 10, 12 years. Uh, well, you know, at that point, it'll yeah. be ready to go. <laughs> yeah. And obviously, they doesn't like they invented it last week. Right. No, no. Um, yeah, exactly. I, I mean, it's. I guess it's it's always like front of mind for me that I uh, you know I talk about these technologies and I don't want to be part of the problem where I make people think that um, you know I've been called a techno optimist before and people don't use that as a that's not a compliment when people call you a techno optimist no. what they mean is you're one of those people that thinks that we don't need to do anything because technology will save us and I do think that technology will save us but it doesn't mean we don't have to do anything like it takes a lot of work to get, get technology to the point where it will save us and you know I've been working. <laughs> 
working towards that goal for the last uh, 17 odd years. So, you know, when people get upset, oh, you know, oh, we didn't have to do anything. The technology just happened. It's like, well, a lot of us were doing something. And I mean, you're, you're the same. You, <laughs> I don't think that you think that your yeah. technology that, <laughs> yeah, that, um, yeah, WeatherGuard did not just, no. oh, look, here's this fully formed technology that's commercially viable. You know, like it's, <laughs> It's a lot of work. Um, so, yeah, I do try to balance like, yes, yeah. the technology is going to be there, um, but I want to, you know, put it in context so people get the right idea. And if you think we need to reduce emissions <laughs> before 2035, which I I think the majority of people agree that we do by now, then, you know, this is not going to be um, all steel isn't going to be decarbonized just you know because technology says so by that no. that point so no. um yeah that's why i always talk about the the ages and they probably sound real flippant like off the top of my head just guesses but <laughs> usually it's based on it's based on you know um conversations that i've had with the the companies that are developing these technologies and i you know i know i know where they are in the maturation cycle you know how many prototypes they've got and how far they've got left to scale up so it's not yeah it's not based on nothing Any, anything <laughs> oh yeah anything non-software takes time and it mm. takes time to get the manufacturing right it takes time to get all the bugs worked out it takes time to to get it into marketplace get to prove itself to get some case studies i think our technology is 16 years old right so it's able to drive right now if it were if it were a person, it would be driving right now, and, and that's what it feels like. It's like, oh, with this thing, this thing's obvious. Everybody would be using it next year, and it, it did feel like that for the longest time. But it just takes time, and I think we we uh, I'll put America into this. We Americans think everything is like Facebook. You know, it's not there one day, and in the next day, there it is, and it's got a billion users. No, it takes a long time, and you have to to realize that. Great technologies in their infancy, even Tesla. I mean, Tesla is a good example of the same thing. It took them a long time to get their product to a point where average people could, in theory, buy it and appreciate it. Their early mm. vehicles were not that great, right? And mm. I think anything manufacturing-wise is always that way. So I'm not sweating whether we're going to get to the steel thing. I, I'm just glad that we're starting. I think you are too. That yeah. It yeah, needs yeah. to start now. If we're going to make 2050... It needs to start now because you're not going to make it if you if you don't. All right, Orsted involved in another project. Uh, they are looking to seed wind turbine uh, foundations towers on offshore with coral. So coral reefs harbor about thirty over thirty percent of all known marine species are right there on the coral reefs, which was amazing. I didn't know is that much of the organic. Uh, living creatures in the ocean are actually on coral reefs. That's a lot. And uh, they're saying that uh, the coral reefs benefit more than a billion people through their ecosystems. I guess fish eat the coral reefs, we eat the fish, the cycle continues. Um, and that there's roughly $3 trillion per year in nat nat natural infrastructure, food security, tourism, medicines that come from coral reefs. So Orsted is looking at seeding the wind turbine foundations jackets Uh with coral to see if it'll stick. Now, this is taking place in, in Taiwanese uh, waters, and they're going to try it on four turbines to see how it goes, and they're going to monitor it for a little while. But this is, uh, I think it's being run out of Australia, Newcastle University. 
Is that around you, Rosemary? Newcastle University? It's about four so and a the, half the cl- hours north of me. Yeah. I was there there oh, recently. Okay. Built there's, there's there's a ton of cool oh, really? tech projects coming out of that university. Yeah. Yeah. Um Wow. Yeah, so that's not surprising. So the yep. Oh yeah. So they're saying that the, the turbine structures have a unique environment for coral to grow because it's close to the close to the surface where they can get sunlight, which helps obviously helps them grow. And it has a proper temperature, so it's going to be, I guess, kind of warm and sunny for coral reefs. Uh, so this is, this is a new trial. Now, I, I think everybody in America would say, "Oh, that's that's crazy! You know, putting coral on a wind turbine is going to cause problems. It's just eventually going to cause problems. It's going to degrade the the towers, and it's and it's almost like uh, the, the, one of the concerns to hear from the fisheries is." If a wind turbine were to expire, stop using it, what are you going to do with all the jacket? Everything is sort of below the waterline. What would you do? Well, if you seeded it with coral, the chances you moving it are zero because, it, mm. you know, the environmental impact with that would be significant. So does that essentially make these foundations permanent? And, it, and maybe it does. And maybe it's better for the fish anyway. And maybe it creates more of an, a habitat for marine life to to grow any thoughts there, rosemary yeah I, I i don't see the huge um problem with with leaving that sort of stuff in place afterwards um you know we've been putting stuff in the ocean for a long time as you know shipwrecks that are hundreds of years old and you know there's a great locations to go scuba diving because um you know animals love it so it, it's that to me is not not yeah. a huge risk you know it's it's impacting the environment in some way but um it has it so so far the evidence doesn't suggest that it's you know causing massive problems yeah i think this is an interesting hmm. project and in some ways obvious but you know obvious once you hear that they're, they're doing it and it is kind of obvious that it's coming out of australia actually because you know we've got the great barrier reef um the longest coral reef in right. in the world I'm, I'm pretty sure definitely the best one i'll say as a non, non-biased australian we've got some other coral <laughs> oh, reefs as well okay. um <laughs> but it, it it is amazing and um yeah it's uh I, I guess you guys haven't been to um you haven't been to australia right so you wouldn't have gone to the barrier reef but it is amazing for the biodiversity there and then if you um yeah just amazing part of the world you go, if you go up around cairns or or further north um then you can also get to the Daintree rainforest is right adjacent to the, you know, on land next to the coral reef. And that has immense biodiversity mm. too. I read that actually one square meter of that rainforest has the same biodiversity as all of Europe. There's <laughs> as many species in that one, one wow. square meter, you know, going up the tools are, the trees are really tall. Yeah. So it's just, just amazing um, place to go if you're a nature lover. But the reef, the reef is suffering. There's more and more bleaching events. There's always been bleaching events every now and then, but now you're seeing them, um, you know, sure. back to back, and just you know, like seems like more years than not. There's another, another mass bleaching event. Um, the solution to that is to you know stop climate change immediately and uh, you know get rid of the one and a half or what, you know what's... whatever degrees we're already locked into. But since we can't do that immediately, and you. <laughs> Um, no one country can control that and Australia is not pulling our way anyway but you know they're, they're looking at um, mitigation strategies for for the reef and that includes figuring out yeah. how that we can re- rebuild it once the damage is in place and so there is actually what? a lot of of research projects into how to seed 
bits of coral reef and try and repair them. So I guess they're taking what they've learned from that and then, yeah, applying it here. Yeah. Have you seen or listened to a podcast talking about reseeding the coral reefs and basically uh, taking uh, pieces of coral reef and then nurturing it in a laboratory to make it more resilient to temperature changes or to environmental mm-hmm. environmental uh, changes, and then reseeding it. Th- that's actually happening in like the Caribbean. Uh, ah. There was a really interesting podcast, and I forget the name of the company, but they were doing this and and, and trying this process to make the reefs uh, more resilient by I don't I don't wouldn't call it genetic modification but that it's what it sounded like to me selective uh, breeding so I guess the yeah selective breeding I think that's essentially what it is yeah, yeah. Uh, to 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 then re- repopulate and that it is uh, there were some companies that were actually funding that effort so it isn't like uh, this is new it seems like there's a lot of uh, of money and time and effort being researching into this I think it was happening at Yale University of all places that they were trying to, to to bring this technology to bear and make the the reefs more active and I maybe this is something that Orsted would could use to instead of just basically transplanting existing uh, coral reef and organisms maybe they could you know breed a superhuman version of a coral reef that could withstand some of these uh, environmental changes that are about to happen. I think it's, it's I think it's interesting mm. that, that you can even conceive of that, right? I think there was, I would say, two years ago, even sort of pre-pandemic, that most people would say the coral reefs have no shot that 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 they're just going to be wiped out over time. And I I don't think that's the case anymore. I think there's a shot. Yeah, I'm really scared for our reefs, and um, uh, yeah. Uh, Last year or something, the, our, our previous government, you know, we've just changed government in Australia. So we had a conservative government. Yeah. Now we've got a more progressive government. The previous government had announced this, you know, huge amount of money to save the reef. And then it turned out that like the bulk of that was for a kind of project like um, what you're describing, where, you know, it's not humans that need to change our behavior to, uh, to uh, well, slow climate change. It's the coral. That, it's the coral that needs to change, you know. Um, so I was kind of, uh, I think most of us just rolled our eyes because it's like, yeah, okay, we thought that you were, you know, doing something for the reef, but we should have known better than to think that you were actually going to try and stop, well, stop damaging the reef. Um, yeah. Well, you, you, see, you hear two projections, though, right? I think there's different projections on what the ocean temperatures will be. You see this sort of rapidly increasing, unstoppable ocean increase. I think you have mm. to be able to negotiate those waters just as well as, you know, controlling CO2 emissions and, and stabilizing ocean temperatures. I'm not sure if anybody has a real lock on that. But yeah. it, I, I would rather hedge my bets than not. No, I, I, I agree. Um, but it was just like a bit of a eye roll moment i think collectively <laughs> most australians that care about the way we're like oh this is what you meant when you when you committed however many million dollars to um to the reef i mean there have been good things done as well because climate change isn't the only problem that the reef um, has faced there's a lot of issues from agricultural runoff and stuff and and there has been a lot of a lot right. of hard work and successful work done there to you know reduce that I haven't seen as many, you know, like in recent years, they've been trying to, you know, dredge parts of the reef to make, you know, huge coal export um, ports. And I haven't heard so much about that recently. I think it's kind of Mm. stuck in um, 
yeah, I, I think it's a borderline economic and there have been, you know, some uh, legal legal action that's been, you know, delaying it. Um, I don't think it's been definitively shut down yet, but, yeah, that uh, we're at least doing less, well, <laughs> less often actively harming the reef now than we probably were five, ten years ago. Um, yeah, but uh, it, it's... You you got to go there and see it. I th I think because it's like you know this, it, it's a miraculous <laughs> ecosystem. It really is it's like nothing you've ever seen before. I mean, there's other coral reefs and um, good ones, and they're all you know different, unique in their own way. But yeah. you know, you see like how on earth did this uh, ecosystem manage to evolve to <laughs> to be like this? It's so you know balanced with all these um, species playing together. I mean, you've seen Finding Nemo, right? So you know about the. <laughs> The clownfish and the anemone. We know all about um, that. Yeah, <laughs> and then you know because because of climate change and other you know just stupid behaviour from humans, it'll just be gone. You know that uh, I just find that quite devastating. It's that sort of um, you know protecting those special environments. That's the reason why I. I personally am involved in, in renewable energy because it's just not acceptable to me that this amazing thing exists and we're just trashing it. So um, yeah, I, I, I want to <laughs> I want to see well, that's, every action that's why to protect these reefs. I, yeah. Well, that's why you named your company Partalote, right? It's yeah. named after the Australian <laughs> national bird. So, <laughs> that's not our national yeah, bird. I don't know what our national bird is actually. About the emu, I guess. Is it's it on not our coat of arms. No, paddlets. <laughs> no one even knows what a paddle is. Just this tiny, tiny bird. It's like uh, weighs six grams, and they're they're common. They're not endangered. They're they're doing okay, um, but they you know they hide um, up fairly high in the in the trees. So they once you know what you're looking and listening for, they're quite easy to spot when you get out in a bit of bush. But yeah, no, not our national bird. Um, but if I ever become prime minister, then I'll, <laughs> I'll lobby for change. I don't think it would be popular because no one, no one knows this bird. <laughs> uh, yeah. Rosemary, I, I don't see you being a really good politician. I think that's what? one thing that you, uh, you just but can't. But my tact, <laughs> my immense <can't>. tact. <laughs> <laughs> You're a great engineer. That usually means not so good at politics. <laughs> Yeah, oh, no, I, I'm sure that I would hate it. Um, so I probably probably won't be prime minister, and we probably <laughs> I'm sure, won't. I'm sure you would too. <laughs> we probably won't rename our national bird after my consulting company. <laughs> so if you want to see what a partilo is, just go to uh, Rosemary's website, partilo.com, Right? Isn't it partilo.com? Uh, consulting dot com. Yeah. Consulting. Sorry, partilo.consulting.com. Yeah, uh, yeah, you can check yeah. it out there. That's going to do it for this week's Uptime Wind Energy Podcast. Thanks for listening. Please take a moment and give us a five-star rating on the platform you're listening to us on. Be sure to subscribe in the show notes below to Uptime Tech News, our weekly newsletter, as well as Rosemary's YouTube channel, Engineering with Rosie. And we'll see you here next week on the Uptime Wind Energy Podcast.